See, if God has transformed us, if he's working in us to make us new, if he's taking and disciplining us to train us in righteousness, our lives should begin to look different. You and I should desire holiness. That is a character of being unlike this world. Because you don't have to look too far to see this world is filled with a lot of ugly. It's filled with a lot of hate, a lot of hurt, a lot of division, a lot of bitterness and anger. This world is filled with all kinds of sin. But God is not content keeping you there. Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay, because faith is not about having it all figured out, and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before He'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are. Hey, Point family. It is so good to be here with you again today. Um, For those of you who are joining us online and are new to our family since this time that we've been apart, my name's Adam and I'm the pastor here at The Point. Uh, Right now we are in a series called Real Men Cry. We've been exploring uh, some of the things in the Bible about manliness, and about masculinity, what it means to be a man. And, And I have to confess to you, I've not always been a very manly man. I mean, to be really fair and honest, despite the appearance you might see before you, I'm not in any way, shape, or form athletic or strong or skilled and capable. I'm often quite clumsy and I trip quite a bit. In fact, when I was in high school, I was four foot 10 my freshman year of high school and five foot six at the start of my sophomore year of high school. So I went from being super short and awkward to being super tall and awkward. And I just, I didn't know why people enjoyed sports. And our culture often thinks that sports and manliness go hand in hand. There's this old like, If only you like it more, you don't have to play it, but you have to like it and know it and watch it and love it and and live for sports. So these last four months, for those of you who are sports oriented, has it been weird seeing ESPN playing like, you know, all these absurd sports around the world because nothing was on? Has it been weird wondering, will football happen this fall? How many of you, let's be honest, normally have a countdown for football? And you're like waiting, chomping at the bit. You can't wait until that first Saturday rolls around when college football rolls out again. You can't wait for Sundays, all football, all day long. After church, of course, right? You just can't wait for those sports that you love so dear. And let's be honest a little more. How many of you have gotten into a fight with somebody about sports? Maybe arguing about who's the greatest or arguing about which team is better, and it doesn't matter that all the stats are against your team and your team always loses, you know this will be the year. This will be the time when finally they see victory. And if they come so close and just barely miss, or if they're really far apart, it's never your team's fault. It's always the refs who called bad calls, right? Or the other players who cheated. And there's always some reason why your team doesn't win. You've been there. I've been there. 
I have to confess that most of my life, I didn't really care about sports. I grew up with a bunch of very effeminate sisters. I grew up with a bunch of girls who really didn't care about sports themselves. And so in that household, it wasn't really a thing. And I went to college and I thought I was better than everybody, right? Because all I had to do was just tell them how much they idolized sports and how it was such a stupid waste of time. And it didn't matter at all. And then I actually started watching. And I realized it doesn't matter at all. Man, it's really fun. Sometimes I can get drawn into the excitement and the thrill, even of a team I don't care about, just to see what's gonna happen next. Today, as we explore masculinity and manhood, the author of the text that we're looking at uses a lot of comparisons to athleticism and athletes to help us understand faith. So I'm gonna do the same. Now, I mentioned earlier the greatest of all time. When you think about that term, the GOAT, who comes to mind? Is there a specific player you think of? This player is the best player the sport has ever seen. This coach is the best coach the sport has ever seen. Who is that? The GOAT for you. Now, I don't know if he is the GOAT or not. Uh, for many years, I disliked the man simply because I thought that was the thing I was supposed to do. Uh, but now the more I, I read and learn and I actually start to pay attention to sports, I'm realizing he's kind of impressive. And maybe the reason is the team around him. Maybe it's the coaches he was under, or the scheme he had. I don't know the reason, but the stats certainly are impressive. I'm talking specifically of Tom Brady. And I know some of you are rolling your eyes because you want every reason to hate the Patriots. And that's okay with me because I don't really care. It doesn't really matter. But one thing I really like about Tom Brady is his perseverance. Tom Brady holds the record for the most fourth quarter comebacks of any quarterback. 45 fourth quarter comebacks in his career. That's impressive. I remember a couple years ago watching the Super Bowl and thinking it was definitely over, so I left at the end of the third quarter because I had almost an hour drive home. And then I got home and I found out it went into overtime and the team that was winning didn't win. And I was so shocked. Tom Brady has all these fourth quarter comebacks that just amaze me. And what I love about that is this perseverance, this willingness to say it's not over until it's over, to do whatever it takes to get to that final line, that finish line, that goal line to succeed, to win. In this text we're gonna look at today, this endurance and this perseverance is some of what you and I need as men to be the men God made us to be. So let's look at it. Hebrews chapter 12. Perhaps you're familiar with the book of Hebrews. Maybe not. We don't know who wrote this book. Uh, some think it was Paul. We don't actually know for sure. But whoever wrote the book of Hebrews is intimately familiar with the Jewish customs and traditions in life. And all of the book of Hebrews is connecting the dots for Jewish people for why Jesus is the answer they've been looking for. For why he's truly the goat, the one they've needed, the one they've hoped for all this time. And it talks about really weird things like priests and sacrifices and the temple and all of this language that for non-Jewish people is kind of foreign. And in Hebrews chapter 11, there's almost this hall of fame of Jewish people. This list of people who've gone before, who've lived their life in faith so that you and I can as well. 
Uh, if you're familiar with that, it's this incredible account talking about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham all the way up to David and Samuel, all of these different people who lived and persevered though they hadn't yet seen the prize they were pursuing. And then we get to chapter 12. After all of this, this description of this cloud of witnesses, these people who are there, who've celebrated, who've lived in faith, we get this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I love the language here. If you aren't familiar with what he said previously, you might just miss it, miss it altogether. See, the language he's describing here is that of an athletic event where there's a great crowd surrounding uh, the one who's running, a great group of spectators watching. Part of what I enjoy most about sports is not so much the act of playing because I'm not very good, but I really enjoy the camaraderie that comes from being a part of a crowd, all cheering for the same thing, all hoping for the same goal, all celebrating the highs and, and mourning the lows. I love being a part of that crowd that's witnessing the spectacle going on and hoping for the best outcome we can imagine. Here he describes all of those who've gone in faith, who've lived before as this cloud of witnesses that's surrounding you and me, surrounding us, the people of God, cheering us on, watching what God is still doing in our midst. And he says, because we're surrounded by this cloud, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run. Interesting fun fact for you. Uh, in Greek athletics, uh, when they would run and do races, they would actually strip naked and they would run naked because they were afraid that their clothes would weigh them down and slow them down. And in order to give the best performance possible, they wanted to be removed of anything that might slow them down. So laid bare before the whole crowd watching, they would run. And this is the language he uses here. Setting aside every weight laying aside everything that might hinder us, everything that might hold us back, everything that might slow us down in our pursuit of that final goal. Let's set all of that aside and run with endurance. And then he continues, run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Maybe you're familiar with these two verses. Let us throw aside everything that hinders us and let us run, because there is a cloud of witnesses, people who've gone before us, who are watching, eager to see what God is doing. They're watching you, they're watching me. And I love this, we look to Jesus, he's the one, he's the founder, the one who gave us the ability to run, the one who comes to us to give us faith that we can be a part of this great cloud of witnesses. He's the one who's not only the founder of our faith, he's the perfecter. That when you and I are imperfect, when we fall, when we stumble, when we fail, when sin holds us back, he's the one who makes it right. So if we're going to run with endurance, we look to him and we run. 
We look to him who despised or who endured the cross, despising the shame. We look to him who suffered this great weight, who experienced this great agony so that we could have victory. I'm not much of an athlete, but what I love and respect about athletes is the amount of work that goes into training is almost more than any of the, the work that goes into actually winning. You see, athletes, in order to be successful, they don't just have natural talent. That's certainly helpful. They're surrounded by people who know the sport really well, who can help them learn the little details and the fine minutiae, the little things that will help them be a step ahead of the rest. Athletes pour hours upon hours upon hours into strength training and conditioning and practicing so that from muscle memory, they can do what they're needing to do in the time when it matters most. These fourth quarter wins for Tom Brady uh, don't all happen by accident. Maybe one or two, they, there were some extra things that happened. Maybe there was a flag that went in their favor or a penalty that, that set them back. Maybe there was something that really helped. But most of those fourth quarter wins came from the training and the persistence and the readiness that in the time of battle, in the time of need, they knew what to do. You might be familiar with these verses, but what I want us to focus on is what comes next. If you and I are called to run this race with endurance, to run with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, so what? Then what? Continues, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. See, when an athlete trains, it's easy to give up. It's easy to quit. When you miss your shot, when you miss the throw, when you miss that moment, it's easy to say, I'm done. I can't do this. And maybe in your life, you've grown weary and faint-hearted. You look at the world around you and see all the evil and all the hatred and all the mess and all the fighting and division and say, what hope is there for anything to be different? You look at your own life and the times when you failed time and time again. This is just who I am. I can't change. I won't change. You need to accept this to be true. It says, look, don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. You see here in the beginning of this chapter, the sin that he's referring to, this author is referring to this general kind of sin. Not necessarily your mistakes, not necessarily the things that you have done that have caused you pain, but the sin that has come against you. You see, when we talk about sin, it's really easy to only look at our own imperfections. But there's a truth to scripture that you are not just a collection of your mistakes and a collection of the things you've done right. You're also a product of the environment you've lived in. And the people around you have certainly sinned and their sin has certainly hurt you. This author in Hebrews, he's writing to a group of people who are facing persecution. Some of them have suffered and died. Some of them have heard of people who have been killed because they're Christian. And he says to them, look, in all of this sin that's come against you, and all of this hostility that you're experiencing, this is what he says in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted 
to the point of shedding your own blood. I love that. You see, in the midst of all of our pain, it's easy to look at our pain in the ways others have come against us, in the ways others have harmed us, the things they have done wrong that have been a stumbling block in our way. And it's easy to get overwhelmed. But then he says this, you, in your struggle against all of that, have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Basically, in 2020 terms, he says, but did you die? Mm -hmm. Right? Like in all of your pain and all of your mess, did you die? No, it'll be okay. Because the one we're looking to, he did. He did die in the struggle against sin. He did shed his blood in the struggle against sin. And all the things that came against him, he even suffered to that point. You and I can surely suffer here and now. We can get through this. It'll be okay. And then he continues, and he says this, And have you not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? He quotes from the Old Testament, from Psalms and from Proverbs. He says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now when we hear this word discipline, I don't know about you, but for me, when I think of discipline, I think of the firm and heavy hand of judgment, of punishment, of consequence, right? Can't wait to discipline my kids when they're misbehaving. Maybe you think of discipline as God's anger and his wrath, his judgment. But that's not what discipline is inherently. Yeah, there's a nature of discipline for my children that has to include consequences for their sin. When my kids misbehave, there has to be a consequence, something that helps them think differently. But discipline is so much more than just consequence or judgment. The term used here for discipline is paideia, which means training in righteousness. The discipline of the Lord is training. Just like an athlete who goes to the gym, who works out harder and harder over and over and over again to build strength and conditioning and muscle memory, God disciplines us that we can be ready in all circumstances, that we can receive that prize that's set before us. God disciplines us as a father, his child. If I were to only discipline my children for the purpose of punishment, I promise you I would do a lot of harm to my kids and they'd need a lot more therapy than they're already going to need when they get older. <laughs> but my discipline for my kids has a purpose much more than punishing them. My discipline is because I love them. I want to see Eden and Elijah and now Ezra grow into the fullness of who they can be. I want to see them learn to not quit when things get tough. I want to see them learn to love others even when they're not loved. I want to see them learn what it looks like to respect when people don't respect you. I want them to grow in every way to be a person, an adult, a grown-up who loves and serves and cares way better than even I can. I want more for my kids than myself. And so out of this love and this desire, I discipline. And sometimes that includes consequences they don't like. 
and other times that includes getting down on their level eye to eye, looking them in the eyes and talking about what they did wrong and then telling them how much I love them, how much I forgive them. The author of this text, he says, look, it is for discipline that you have to endure. Don't give up. God in this pain, in this suffering, in this hardship, when people have come against you, when you look at the world and say, this is too much, don't give up. In the midst of this, God is doing something. And you might not see it now, you might not know it now, you might not feel it now, but God is doing something for your good. And then he continues, if we, or if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You see, at the time, uh, not too different than today, actually, there is this culture that actually believed fathers of illegitimate children didn't need to be a part of raising their children. If you had illegitimate children in this time, you could just abandon them and leave them, and that was somebody else's problem. It's amazing to me that 2,000 years later we have the same problem like we talked about last week, this fatherlessness. Dads who are not present in the lives of their children, often because they say, well, that's her job. That's not my problem. I didn't want that child to begin with. And so, he says, look, if illegitimate children can be left without discipline, what does that make us if we're left without discipline? But you and I, were not illegitimate to God. We're not these children he just leaves off to the side and ignores and abandons. No, we are his children, which is why he disciplines us, to shape us and form us, to train us, to be someone new. At the point we often say, come as you are. And you know what? We will always believe that. God's starting point for discipline, his starting point for love, his starting point for shaping and forming someone is not after you've done a bunch of hard work. It's not after you get it all right and clean up your mess. It's right there in the midst of it when everything is falling apart. At the same time, God loves you way too much to keep you in that mess. God loves you way too much to keep you in those sinful patterns of behavior, those sinful actions that you came in with. He wants to shape and form you and discipline you to walk in the fullness of the life that he gives. And discipline is never fun. It continues. Besides this, we all, or we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. See, God's discipline in our lives. The thing we need to endure through, the perseverance we need, is for the purpose that we might share in his holiness. And holiness is a, a word we don't often use in our culture. In fact, it's, it's often got really bad connotations with it, right? We know people who are holier than thou, who think their poop doesn't stink, who think everything about them is perfect. That's not the holiness being described here. See, the word holy literally means to be set apart, to be made different, to stand out in a crowd. 
This is certainly something you and I should desire. See, if God has transformed us, if he's working in us to make us new, if he's taking and disciplining us to train us in righteousness, our lives should begin to look different. You and I should desire holiness. That is a character of being unlike this world. Because you don't have to look too far to see this world is filled with a lot of ugly. It's filled with a lot of hate, a lot of hurt, a lot of division, a lot of bitterness and anger. This world is filled with all kinds of sin. But God is not content keeping you there. He wants to begin to work in your heart and in your life and begin to change not just the way you act, but the way you think, the way you feel, so that the way you love changes too. Look, our, the reason he disciplines is that we can share in his holiness. It's not something we earn. It's not something that makes me better than the guy next to me. It's something he gives as a gift. Then it continues. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When God is shaping and forming you, when he's chiseling away those parts of you that aren't very helpful or healthy, when he's tearing down those walls that you've built up and those patterns of behavior that you've hid behind, when he's changing all of that, it hurts. But it's really good because the fruit that comes is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Wouldn't it be great if you and I could live as peaceful people? And I don't mean peaceful people like passive, mild, meek, boring people. No, I mean peaceful people that are, un, or that are not unsettled when turmoil comes. I think part of the reason Tom Brady is so successful in football is because in the moment of turmoil, in the moment of chaos, when everything seems to fall apart, he keeps his eyes fixed on the goal at hand. He doesn't lose his confidence or his training. No, he relies on that all the more to make that pass or make that run. You and I, the fruit God is creating in us through his discipline is holiness. And his holiness creates righteousness that is peaceful. That when everything falls apart, we can stand strong. We can fix our focus on the thing that really matters, the one who has conquered death, who has shed his blood and died to overcome this sin. Then he goes on. Whereas before he talks this general sin that comes against us, and he says, well, did you die? No, then keep going. Now he begins to shift the focus. If sharing in God's holiness is our desire, if sharing in God's holiness is the thing we cry for, this is what comes of that. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. I am not a runner. I'm not an endurance runner. I don't even want to pretend to try or want to be an endurance runner. But in this language of an athlete and this idea of a crowd watching the athlete run and perform, he says, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. If you've ever watched somebody do a long run, maybe a marathon or one of those crazy people who do the ultra runs like the 100 miles or something nuts like that, there comes a point for every runner where the race 
is just too much. And, and you see in their body, their hands and their shoulders and their knees, their whole body begins to take on this posture of having hit a wall, being ready to quit, having nothing left in them. But here he says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. For every runner who runs that race with endurance, who desires to cross the finish line, for every runner who desires to push past that pain, there comes a moment when they hit that wall and they just keep going. And as they go, their, their body begins at some point later to find a new strength, a second wave, a strength they didn't even know they had to stand firm and keep going one foot after the next. As he's writing here, he's talking to the whole congregation of the church. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees, straighten the paths, and there's this purpose here, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. See, when our ankle is sprained, it's hard to keep running. When our body is strained, it's hard to keep going, but lift your drooping hands, strengthen your knees, keep going. He's saying here not just this general idea that we all should do this. He's speaking very specifically to the congregation. We are one body, one church. So to lift our drooping hands is to find those who are falling behind, to find those who are struggling and hurting, who are, are really finding it difficult to persevere, and to lift them up, to say, we need you and you need us. Let's run this race together. And so we strengthen the members of our body that are weak, that we can keep going together in perseverance, fixing our eyes on what really matters most, Jesus. And he continues, strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See, for you and I to be men who are the greatest of all time, we don't have to be better than the man next to us. We don't have to be better than what people think we're supposed to be. To be the goat, we don't need to do anything but be better than who we were yesterday. And we do so together. We strive together for peace with everyone. That we can be the kind of people that in the midst of turmoil, others look and say, how are you so calm? That we can be the people in a divisive world. We can be the kind of men they look to and say, how come you are able to unite? What does this look like? I want what you have. Strive for peace with everyone. If we want to be men of God, we need to stop arguing and fighting and dividing and seeking to find what others aren't doing well. And instead say, how do we lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees and come together in peace and in holiness? It says, without this holiness, no one will see the Lord. You and I are called to be holy, not for the purpose of being better than our neighbor, not for the purpose of showing them how sinful they are. We're called to be holy so that in us and through us, others might see God and His holiness, that He's unlike any other, that He stands apart better than any. He's the champion, the goat, the one who has won. Did you know that people see that through you? 
and he, and yet so often I find it's a lot easier not to strive for peace and holiness but to just keep doing what we've always done I used to drink a lot and so now I just will keep drinking a lot I used to make all these jokes that were really crude and degrading to women so why not stop now oftentimes men we don't seek to build each other up and strengthen each other we actually seek to find the lowest common denominator. We find the thing we can most agree on, which usually is not the most holy and good and positive. And we stoop to that level. But he says, strive for peace and for holiness. And then he goes on and he gives these three very practical things. He says, if you want to strengthen your weak knees, if you want to lift your drooping hands, these three things have to happen. This is what it looks like to be men who cry for holiness. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See, there's this truth in scripture that is really uncomfortable. And this truth is that outside of the church, apart from the community of faith, God's grace doesn't exist. And that doesn't mean you can't become a Christian outside of faith or outside of the church. It doesn't mean that you, if you leave the church, you're forever not a Christian. No, what it means is we need this team around us who supports us. We need this team, this front line who stands guard and protects us so that we can run the race. We need others. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Man, if you want to cry for holiness, let me ask this question. Does your life look like a life filled with God's grace? Are you a person that people can look to and say, in that man, I find Jesus? If you're not, it's quite possible that people look to you and say, in that man, I find reason not to find Jesus. In that man, I actually find reason to run from Jesus because if that's who follows Jesus... I want nothing to do with that. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God means that you and I, if we're to run with endurance, if we're to cast off every weight, we need to seek to live in such a way that through our words and our actions and the things that we embody with our character, other people see God and find his grace. That also means we have to be really, really uncomfortable and willing to give grace to those who least deserve it. Is that you? I hope that it can be you and me. He continues then with the second thing. First, we need to make sure that nobody fails to obtain the grace of God as much as, as it is up to you. Help others see God and connect with him. And then he says this, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one Oh, this is the third one. Uh, see to it that no bitterness springs up and causes trouble. You see, our natural tendency as men, even as women, as sinful people, our natural tendency is this. When sin comes against us and we are hurt, when somebody else's sin brings us pain, we want to begin to set a wall around us and say, you're not a part of this group. You're outside of this. We want to begin to find reason to divide and hate and separate from others. And sometimes those reasons are legitimate and sometimes they're not. But the problem with bitterness is as it grows, all that it does is poison everything. 
In fact, in the Old Testament, in, in the Exodus story, there's this account where the people begin to grumble against God. They're bitter and they say, God, life was better before. Life was easier when we were slaves than when we were free. Life was greater before. And God actually poisons the people and a whole bunch of people suffer and die because of this bitterness. The place uh, where that took place was called Meribah. And because of that grumbling against God, the whole generation was not allowed to enter into the promised land. Because of that place where bitterness consumed them, a whole generation missed out on what God was doing. See, when you and I begin to give way to bitterness, we lose sight of the love that has laid down his life for us. So what do we do? As the people of God, if we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, if we're on this team called to set our face towards the prize, to run the race with endurance, we need to see to it that no bitterness grows up. The only way we do that is by being really, really quick to forgive those who've wronged us. This is hard. For real men to cry for holiness, you have to be eager to ask for forgiveness. And you have to be more eager to give it. Are you willing to do that? See, I think when you and I, when we are people who remember that we are sons who are being disciplined, that we are children who are loved, that we're being shaped and formed to come as we are, but then to become who we are, when we remember what God has done, we have to remember the forgiveness he's given us and in turn give it to others, that no bitterness or anger or malice grows. So first, if we want to see holiness, if we want to cry for holiness, we have to cry that through us, others would see God. Then we have to cry that we are quick to forgive and be forgiven, to seek forgiveness where we have wronged and not allow bitterness to destroy a community. And then he gets to this last one. We need to, we need to strive that no sexual immorality or unholiness is among us. No sexual immorality or unholiness. See, there's this truth in Scripture that sexual immorality destroys the community. We sometimes think, well, it's a private thing, right? It's done in secret. What harm can it cause? But the truth of Scripture, men, is that when you and I are sexually immoral, it harms everybody. If we want to cry for holiness... We have to cry for sexual morality. What does this mean? Well, oftentimes, both men and women in our culture today have been exposed to countless uh, opportunities to see pornography and to justify it as good. Both men and women today, uh, I think 90% of men and 40% of women admit to having looked at porn in the last 30 days. Men, if you and I want to be men who cry for holiness, we have to say this is no longer acceptable. We have to begin to believe women are worth being viewed and treated not as objects for our affection, but as people who are loved. We have to begin to change our actions both in private and in public. That sexual immorality does not destroy us. He gives this example of Esau, if you remember, Esau was one of the children of Isaac, the grandchildren of, of Abraham. And Esau sold his birthright because he was hungry. 
Esau not only sold his birthright, had this flippant attitude of whose he was in God and the promises of God, he also pursued women who were outside of God's promises. He pursued women who were unhealthy for him. And in doing so, completely missed out on all the promises God had in store. See, when you and I want to cry for holiness, it has to begin with this inward look and say, God, where am I unholy? Where am I committing sin that I've justified and said is okay? Where am I living in such a way that actually harms others? Did you know that the porn industry fuels human trafficking? It is impossible for us as a church to fight human trafficking if we as a church also say porn is harmless, it's private, it's your own choice. The two go hand in hand. So man, if you want to cry for holiness and be a man who cries for justice and who cries for future generations and you want to be a man who stands upon what God has declared, you have to say today is the day I will find those witnesses. I will find those people who will strengthen my weak knees and lift my drooping hands that I can say no to the harmful things, that I can begin to be this man of peace, this man of holiness, this man set apart not better than others, but able to pull them up and take them to a whole new level. Church, I believe God is not finished with this work that he set before us. And we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, the people who've gone before us, who are cheering us on and watching, saying, God is not done yet. Even in 2020, in all of our brokenness and all of our mess. So it's my hope and my prayer that you and I as men can begin to stand up and seek every opportunity that others might know the grace of God. It's my hope and my prayer that we can begin to stand up and remove all bitterness within us. And that we can begin to remove all sexual immorality. To see women as the, the valuable, beautiful creation God made, not as objects of our affection. And it's my hope that we can do all of these things because our eyes are fixed on Jesus the one who suffered unto death, unto the shedding of his own blood, that we can look to him and say, you are enough. Change me. Use me. Make me into someone new. This is my hope for you and for me. And I believe that through that, we will connect the disconnected in Knoxville, in Tennessee, and around the world. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, you have called us to cry for holiness. You've called us to remove all bitterness and anger, to strive for peace and your holiness. God, we confess that we fail. We confess that we don't get it right. We confess that we often get content, not with your discipline, but with our comfort. We don't want the hardships of the training and becoming someone new, but we want the reward of the victory at the end. So God, I pray for each one of us that we would begin to cry for holiness that we would desire your discipline, that through the hard, painful process, you would shape and form us to be new. And God, I pray that through this newness of life, others would come to see the love that you have, that you would call us children, that you would call us sons and daughters. I thank you, God, for your love. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue our worship, we're going to take a time together now 
and we're going to confess our sins. You see, the truth of the matter is none of us, not a single one, are holy on our own accord. We're not holy by the works that we've done or the way that we've lived. We're only holy by the work that He has done in us. The founder and perfecter of our faith makes us new. And so we come together, we confess our sins, we cry out to God and say, God, forgive me, renew me, lead me. And He has promised to be faithful and just every time we confess to make us new. So now we're going to put these words of our confession on the screen, and I want to invite you to join me in this confession. Are you ready for this? Most merciful God, we come before you, we have sinned against you. Gosh, I'm struggling. You know, I was just saying right before the service, actually, that things that are memorized are often memorized up until you need them, and then you forget them. So here I am, having forgotten them, with them right before me. So I'm going to cheat in just a moment. I'm going to put them right before me so we can confess them together. All right. Thank you for your grace as I too am a mess. Uh, Apparently it's not showing up. Emily, will you turn that so I can see it a little better? Thank you. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, word, and and deed. By by what what we we have have done and and what we have have left undone. We have sinned against you. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved you our neighbor's selves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. I'll just let Emily keep going. Your son Jesus, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. What you guys don't realize is there's a slight delay, so I asked Emily to put up the live stream right in front of me so I could read it with you because I kept stumbling, and then it went back to this delay and I couldn't actually see it, and I kept stumbling. And here's the beautiful thing that when we confess our sins, God always forgives us. Even when sinful men like me forget and stumble and fail, He is faithful and just and always forgives. So church, as a called and ordained servant of Christ, by His power and on His behalf, I forgive you all of your sins. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank God that he is so filled with grace. And one of the ways we thank him for his grace is we collect an offering. So here in a moment, we're going to put on the screen ways that you can give an offering today to help support the work that God is doing, to help connect the disconnected and move in our city. If you're prepared to give today, you can give online at thepointknox.com by clicking the little blue button in the corner. You can give via the mail with our P.O. box or by going straight to a region's drive-thru. However you choose to give, know this. We don't give to get His love. We don't give to earn it. We give because we already have been given all of His love. Thank you for partnering with us. Join me as we continue to worship. Look, guys, if it's your fourth quarter... If you've had that whole life of doing things wrong, he's not finished yet. It's not too late for today to be the day God begins making a change in you and doing something new that you never thought he could do. It's not too late for today to be the day that you have that comeback win and that comeback victory. So let's finish strong. 
Now, there's this is the part of the service where we always take time for questions, and I try to address them. There's one that I can address and one that I actually need Roger's help with, so I'm going to invite him back here in just a moment for the second question. But the first question is this, Exodus 20, verse 4, graven or carved images commandment. Uh, it's specifically asking this question about what does it mean to have no graven images? Um, and does that mean that if we have a crucifix or Michelangelo's David, are these things uh, breaking the commandment? Uh, it even goes on to say, what about paintings or scriptures, movies, t-shirts, video games? Are these images? What's the difference between artistic expression and making a graven image? Um, and does, it, does the commandment only prohibit using stone, wood, or metal? Uh, what do we do to honor this commandment? Well, for most of church history, there have been two different ways of understanding this commandment. Uh, one argues that this is actually the second commandment and says we should not have any images. And so there's been a whole movement for about 2,000 years of people saying, let's be as uh, barren, as empty, as plain as possible so we don't have any images. But then the flip side says this isn't actually a second commandment, but a continuation of the first commandment. The first commandment that is, have no other gods before me. In the culture that they lived in, that they were coming out of in, in uh, Egypt, uh, there in Exodus, in this culture, they were surrounded by this idea of polytheism, that every god is okay. And you connect to that god through these images, these, these statues, these things you can create by hand to connect with a god that you can't see. And so... I tend to believe, and we at the point tend to believe, that this is not actually a second commandment that prohibits images. I think art is a really valuable tool used throughout history to help teach faith to others. Uh, this isn't prohibiting images, it's prohibiting creating idols, uh, things that we worship ahead of, or in place of, or on behalf of God. So when we make a crucifix or a cross, when we make a statue, the question you have to ask is, am I bowing down and worshiping this statue or this art? Am I celebrating this art as God himself here in artistic form? Or am I celebrating the God through whom I have the capacity to make this art? So what do we do with that? Well, I think it just is a continuation of don't have any idols. And if art becomes an idol, get rid of it. But if it's not an idol, use it to the glory of God and for the purpose of connecting with him. Now, this next question, I need Roger's help. If you'll come on back, Roger, real quick. Okay. Here's this question. And I don't know the answer to this. Okay. <laughs> How did a donut help? Hmm. I don't know. How did the donut help? It just seemed right. When you needed the donut from me, how did that help you? Your oh, words? I thought this was a joke. <laughs> no, it's not a joke. I, I was like, I was like your setup guy. Uh, I wish. So, so sometimes I get weepy when I sing, which that was kind of starting to happen. But really, what was going on is my throat was very, very. All of a sudden, I needed to cough and snort and things like that, scratchy. So, I knew there were cake donuts in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounded way easier than, hey, Adam, could you give me a piece of bread and tear off about a quarter of it? Because I'm having problems. So eating that just like calms your throat down yeah, and helps bit. you get back to focusing. Yeah, well, see, you can't, I can't, my finger won't go far enough to scratch it. Thank you for not doing that on camera. Also. <laughs> so the donut kind of takes the place of that. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, right. So when we say text and questions. So was that your question or did somebody ask that? That came in. Okay, that, fair. That, yeah, I see cool. it right there. How did the donut help okay. Roger? Yeah. Also, like, what do donuts not help? 
Amen. My waistline. Yeah. Yeah, well done. Well. We need a rim shot in this joint. <laughs> uh, <laughs> however, when we say texting your questions, we mean all of your questions. And if they're things we don't know the answer to, I'll pull in my resident expert. That was fun. I never or, got to answer a question before. <laughs> uh, or we'll say, I don't know. And that's okay. Uh, thank you guys for texting in your questions. Thanks for joining us for worship today. Before you go, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Love you guys. Don't forget, two more weeks and we're together once more in person. But in the meantime, you can go online to thepointknox.com. You can sign up for a tour of the brand new space. You can sign up to come out next Sunday afternoon and help us clean that space. And I'm really excited because when we gather in two weeks, not only will it be our first gathering in months, will it be in a new space, but also on the 12th, we're gonna do something really cool. We're gonna baptize my son Ezra and his granddaughter, Reagan, right? Yeah. Yes. So double baptism on our soft opening. <laughs> Woo! What a day. Can't wait to see you there. Have a great week. Love you guys. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.